This is Aspire, Arc Street Public Radio, a content-driven platform broadcasting interviews from our Innovate, Innovate Media, Innovate CSR, and Innovate Under 30 podcast series. Aspire gives public voice to socially conscious and forward-thinking leaders within the nonprofit and for-profit sectors, academia, journalism, and social entrepreneurship. Today, our guest is Judy Stewart, founder and manager of Future Farmers Foundation, a South African organization that helps young South Africans become successful commercial farmers or farm managers through training and leadership development. Future Farmers coordinates apprenticeships that place young South Africans on farms where they work their way up from the bottom. After this practical experience, these young leaders have a chance to enroll in international internship programs, exposing them to diverse agro-business standards and cultures. Judy is an award-winning farmer, a championship farmer, we might say, and has been recognized as an Ashoka Fellow for her inspiring work, an experience we share. Judy, thank you so much for joining our conversation today. David, thank you very much for inviting me to come along. I really appreciate it. That's great. I thought we'd begin. I would love for you to share your early life in farming and how that led to your work with Future Farmers Foundation. David, it's quite interesting. I was thinking recently that my whole life has been preparing me for this particular job. And certainly, this is the most valuable thing that I've ever done. When, when I was a young girl um, and I finished school, all I wanted to do was farm. And I wasn't able to farm because really it was a cultural issue. There were no agricultural colleges in this country that accepted girls. And certainly it wasn't acceptable within my family. I came from a farming family, but girls just didn't farm. So it was very difficult for me, and I understood what it was like to be passionate about farming and not be able to do it. Um, It took me a long, long time to get to the point where I, I eventually bought my first three cows, and... I slowly built up my herd um, over a period of many years. I was involved with different types of farming. I got very involved with uh, with youth shows, uh, which in the United States is known as 4-H, where where you get uh, young children uh, coming out to the farm in my case, they were children who didn't have animals and who came from the cities. And they would select a little heifer calf and train it, and we would take them uh, to the shows. Um, I've taken 15 children to one show. And that was where I started to meet um, the, the black children from uh, some of the agricultural schools. And I got to know them. And when I said to them, oh, are you going to go to agricultural college or university? And I found out that these kids had had no resources whatsoever and there was no future for them in farming. They were kids that were really talented with animals. Um, some of them had even 
earned a place in our provincial team. Um, they had the knowledge, they had the passion, but they just didn't have the money. And I thought, well, we've got to make a plan. I didn't have money, they didn't have money, but I knew people in the industry. And I went to them and I said, please, won't you take on some of these young people as apprentices? And the farmers did that. They, they, they took them on and they literally started from the bottom and they worked their way up. They started on minimum wage, but eventually they were earning good salaries. When it came to sending them overseas, and I really, really wanted them to go overseas because we had hosted a lot of, of AFS volunteers. I don't know if you know about AFS, American Field Scholarship Program. They were coming from all over the world and staying with us. And I could see what that overseas experience and the exposure to different cultures was doing to these young people. And the confidence that they were gaining, being in a foreign country, being away from their families, um, it was an incredible growing process. And I thought, this is what I want these kids to do. Well, our first youngster went to Germany and the second one went to North Florida Holsteins. But it, there were years that I didn't place any overseas because I could not find hosts for them. Um, I, there also wasn't money. And um, eventually um, I found sponsors who were prepared to help to send them. And at the moment we actually have eight, uh, four in the United States and uh, four in Australia, um, all of whom are doing fantastically well. That's great. That is so great. Let me let me back you up a little bit because I think our our audience may be very interested in the historical situation um, that forms your work in terms of how black South Africans have been engaged in the farming industry in South Africa. And I'm wondering, I know one of the critical things about your work is that you're really transcending a focus on subsistence farming with a vision that these black South Africans can become commercial farmers. I think that's a fascinating element of what you do. And I wonder if you could share with us what has been the history of uh, the engagement of black South Africans in farming and particularly in small scale versus large scale operations. David, um, uh, this has actually been a, a cause of huge irritation to me over the years. You know, um, when Europeans originally settled in South Africa, um, in fact, wherever they went in Africa, um, th the farming that was taking place amongst the indigenous people was uh, purely uh, subsistence farming. They were growing food to eat. Um, the farmers who arrived here from Europe were already evolved commercial farmers. So they were thinking commercial farming, the local people were thinking subsistence farming. And I don't think that the 
indigenous people saw themselves as commercial farmers, and even today, most of them don't. Um, and, by, and by the same token, um, the, uh, the commercial farmers, um, they had their way and the subsistence farmers had their way. I don't think it is in any way political. It's purely cultural. And it's never changed. And there's some good reasons for that. One is that if you look at the money that's being invested or it's, it's being donated to develop um, food production in Africa today, it's coming from the big organizations all over the world, millions and millions of dollars and euros, but it's all going into small-scale operations. Nobody is thinking Africans can do commercial. They don't think that way. And um, there's, a, there's a big problem, and that is that if you look at agriculture on a worldwide scale, you will find that farms are passed from, commercial farms are passed from father to son. Mm, right. This, I've actually been to, um, uh, to a farm in Sweden where they know that the farm has been in the family for 12 generations. Wow. Mm. Um, and the thing is that commercial farming is not something that you can learn at university. And even a young man growing up with his dad, by the time he comes back to the – he's 25 or whatever, he can't run that farm. It's a multi-million business. So what he does is he farms in partnership with his dad for 20 or 25 years. Then dad retires, and by this time the young guy has actually purchased the farm from him and and his son starts to join him in the business and so it's not the the ability to operate a commercial farm successfully is not something that you can learn in four or five years it's something that takes a whole generation right and and you see those building blocks have never been there for for these young people. We need to get them into partnerships with top successful commercial farmers so that they can go through that same process of slowly learning how to run the business. We are producing young people in a few years who can manage a thousand cow dairy competently? Wow! But but they can't run a multi-million rand business, and the young white farmers that are taking over from their fathers, if they're 27 or 28 or 29, they can't do it either. Right. It takes it takes them those 15, 20, 25 years to become competent. Interesting. And is there and is this the case in South Africa that many of these commercial farms are still in essence family businesses or have they actually started to be taken over by larger corporations? Um uh yeah, that uh, some of the industries are very much uh 
commercial corporations, uh, such as the timber industry and the sugar industry to some extent. Um, but in a lot of the businesses, um, you really need, such as dairy and, and so on, you really need, um, it's just not going to work that way, I don't think. And but the but what is happening in South Africa is exactly the same as other countries of the world, where um, in order to uh, to be profitable, farms are having to grow. So, um, you know, one of my uncles was a top dairy farmer. Um, I suppose. 30, 40 years ago, milking 80 cows. His son is milking a thousand cows. Not because he wants to, but because he has to. And what is happening is we're losing huge numbers of farmers. I think over the last 20 years, we've probably lost three quarters of our dairy farmers. But we're, we're milking the same number of cows. Right. The, the average age of a commercial farmer in South Africa is over 60 years. Right. So it's possible that these young South Africans that you are uh, developing into farm managers will, uh, some of them may have their own farms and some of them may take a place in agribusiness as it continues to scale within South Africa. Do I understand that right? Well, the, I think that one of the uh, problems that we've had here, uh, there, there are plenty of young people going to agricultural colleges, going to universities and studying agriculture, but they're learning agriculture, not farming. And they don't know how to do stuff. Um, they, A lot of them don't like to get their hands dirty. And um, we... We're teaching our youngsters, we take young people who haven't even finished school sometimes because uh, the education in some of the rural areas is appalling. Um, we are prepared to take people with university degrees, but on the understanding that when they come onto a farm, they know nothing. They have to start at the bottom regardless of their, uh, their education, and they have to learn. I mean, they don't teach you how to wash a dairy or clean a calf pen at university. Right. And you can't be a manager or a farm owner if you don't know how to do that. So they have to work through all these processes, um, learning how to do things like build fences, uh, maintain roads, uh, keep um, irrigation systems going. Um, they have to understand all of this stuff. And this is what we are teaching them on the farms. We're not giving them a broad um, training in agriculture. When we do that first interview with them, what I'm looking for is passion. And I want to know what they love doing. So if the guy says to me, I really want to do poultry. Um, I'm not going to put him on a dairy farm because he's not going to succeed if he doesn't love his work. So I'm looking for something that they love doing. And then I'm trying to develop their skills in, 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 in that area. And, um, 
give us a yeah. sense of give us a sense of the um, you're talking now about the how, the way you select participants for the initial program. How do you come into contact with these uh, with these young um, people who are going to join in? Do you have an interview process? Do you go out to the regional schools? How do they come to you in for that initial internship? David, um, I'm doing this pretty much on my own. Um, I'm doing it without finance and I don't have any people helping me in the field either. And um, I kind of, uh, uh, I'm kind of not encouraging people, so I don't go out and look for them. But I get literally several calls and several emails a day from people who have heard about future farmers, from their friends, from their communities, uh, uh, they found us on the internet, wh whatever, and I always ask them to come to me for an interview. Some of them have come from the far ends of the country. I mean, it's taken them like a day by bus or by taxi to, to, to get to me. Um, I then interview them and I'm not interested in the qualifications that they do or they don't have on paper. I'm looking for passion. I'm looking for that light in the eye yeah. that is telling me that this kid is going to succeed if we create the opportunities for him. Right. Um, I don't I, – I don't – want to make it easy for them. I don't want to go to the school and say, oh, I'd love you all to enroll for my program. Sure. The, the, the way that they're getting to me involves effort on their part. Right. And I, I think this is important. Mm -hmm. Let me ask you a question because you had talked initially about um, your own experience as a woman interested in farming and how I guess you experienced quite a bit of, of sexism early on in your career as a farmer. I'm wondering, do you get young women approaching you and uh, what's the ratio? How do you manage that process? Um, yes, I do. Um, I do get women. Um, there is still a certain amount of discrimination. Uh, uh, I don't know if it's discrimination. Um Culturally, certainly within the white community, women don't farm. Um, it's it's not political. It's a it's a cultural thing, and I think that this is something that we find in in many parts of the world that sure. the male farmers are are more dominant than the females, and in some of the industries. Um, it's it's harder for a woman because of the the physical work um, involved. I'm getting some incredible young women, absolutely amazing young women, really high quality uh, people who want to go into farming. I've got one, only one in dairy, but she's doing very very well. Um, I've got people in poultry and um, horticulture and uh, and often um, the girls are more attractive to uh, to that uh, uh, that kind of industry um, but I think that it's very very important because often um, 
we found that the girls really have a good work ethic and, and a really good attitude towards their work. That's great. That's great. This Innovate series features dialogue with some of the most influential advocates for changing our world, from the CEOs and founders of major nonprofits to the directors of cultural and academic institutions. Innovate demonstrates the vital role of empathy as an agent for that change. Innovate and Aspire are produced in partnership with Ashoka, Innovators for the Public, the Kellogg Fellows Leadership Alliance, and the Philadelphia Social Innovations Journal, and presented by Arch Street Press and the Public Radio Exchange. We now return to our Innovate interview with David Castro and Judy Stewart, founder and manager of Future Farmers Foundation. And and um, so tell me, once they, once you place them in these um, apprenticeships, do how, how do you then interact with the people that they're placed with? Is there an effort to structure their experience so that they meet certain learning objectives? Um, how does that happen? Uh, that part of the program happen? Yeah, David, at the moment, I'm not doing it as well as I would like to because I'm, I'm working with 60 or 70 people in the field. And that's a lot of people for me to uh, uh, to manage. And, and that's apart from the other aspects of the program. But um, my uh, feeling is, and, 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 uh, and I'm proving to be correct, is that um, they are learning what they need to learn on those farms because they are working on a functional farm. They are learning the record keeping, they uh, they enter the computers, they're learning to drive tractors, they, they, they do everything that, um, by the time they've been there, they do everything that, uh, that they need to be able to do. Um, so each farmer is actually training the individual in a slightly different way because that individual is learning that operation. Um, we do uh, we do sometimes move them around. So if someone's working on a fairly small dairy farm and I'm going to send them on an internship to a really big farm in the United States, then I will try and place him on a really high-tech dairy farm for at least three or four months before he goes to the United States. Yeah, but um, the we are training specialists, so um, they will be learning how to do poultry or how to grow tomatoes or um, or, or how to milk cows. Um, they're not getting. Um, we're not teaching them poultry, cattle, sheep, and pigs. Right. It's very. It's it's specialized to the placement that they have. Absolutely, but but it's very much focused on their passion, um, and that is really what I feel. It's it's preparing them for for a job. One thing about our young people, there there are lots and lots of people in this country with um, with excellent qualifications who can't get work, but our young people, provided that they've got the right attitude. Um, 
the the farmers the, the, there's no difficulty placing them that's because they they bring that positive energy to the work site and then they become an asset yes um you know on the farms there are a lot of farm laborers who are working there because it's a job they don't love their work they're not interested in it they go to work from day to day because that's the way they get to take a salary home at the end of the month um I spoke to a farmer recently and I said, haven't you got anyone on your farm who's showing some real interest and real talent that maybe I can help to develop? And he said, no. He said, I've got no one like that. And um, since then, I've placed three of my future farmers on his farm. And two of them have only been there for a month. And what I heard from him, the feedback I got from him is, Judy, these two are too good to start on minimum wage. I need to be paying them more. Interesting. And this is, this is a guy who said his staff aren't interested in their work. And now he's got three people on his farm who not just interested, they love their work. Wow, that's great. That's, that's really a value that you're providing um, to the industry. Um, let, me, let me ask you about the second component here, which is the international component, which is so interesting and I believe very important to the experience. How do you select participants into that international element of the program? This is something that I do very much uh, uh, in cooperation with the employing farmers. Um, I insist that they have two years of experience before we consider sending them overseas. During this period of time, I get to know the kids, the farmers get to know them. We, uh, we work together and, and the farmer will say to me, I think this person's ready to go overseas. Obviously, each farmer has a different uh, different opinion, but they know what the farmer overseas is going to look for in um, uh, in a staff member, and they can say to me, "I would be proud to send this person to a farm in America because I think that I think that he will cope." So we we work together on that. For me, um, you can imagine these young people, the culture shock of arriving in a place like the United States is, is huge. But what they take with them is a thorough knowledge of the work. So if he goes to a dairy, he knows how to milk cows. He knows the recording systems. He understands the business. So when he arrives on that farm, okay, He's in California. He's never seen anything like this before. But when he gets into the dairy, he's in his comfort zone. So we, we give him, he takes that security with him. I know my job and I can do this wherever I am in the world. The rest of it, well, I'll tell you what, he's in the deep end. I, I put a youngster on the plane here in Durban. And he said to me, um, he was flying to Fresno and he said to me, Judy, 
how long is this going to take? Two or three hours? <laughs> and, and his first stop, let me tell you, was Dubai. Um, he came from a very poor rural community. His parents weren't even at the airport to see him off. They, they had no idea that that's what you should be doing or any kind of understanding of the significance of what was happening to him. Mm. Wow. And uh, so, so as I say, the, the, the security that they take with them is, is a profound knowledge of the, and understanding of the work that they're doing. And that is something that we, that is a level that we get them to with, uh, with the help and cooperation of the farmers. Now, have, what, tell me, what are the biggest differences and surprises that your students see when they go overbroad? Is it, is it, is it, is it um, the scale, that the scale is so much bigger? Or what, what are the things that they come back and talk about that are, that are um, uh, shocking to them? Well, the young lad that I sent to Germany phoned me and he said, Judy, there are no workers. <laughs> it's all it's all machines, yeah. <laughs> well, it was yeah. it was it was himself and his boss, and his boss was also the mayor of the local town, and they milked those cows twice a day. They did all the uh, they did all the pasture work and the and the crop work as well, and he couldn't believe it. Um, I had another young man who is actually now managing a a big commercial dairy in Tasmania. And he said, he phoned me and he said, Judy, he said, I've just milked a thousand cows on my own. He said, my hands are sore and I'm tired. But he said, I'm not going to let you down. And, you know, over here, because labor is relatively inexpensive, we will have eight people working in a dairy, the same dairy, in the United States, there'll be two. Wow, hmm. and that's um, that's made that's made possible in part by technology. Is that true? I mean, is it is it also that that there's different technology being employed, or is it just more efficient workforce, or how does that work? Um, we've got uh, we've got some very very high tech uh, dairies here where everything is computerized, but obviously you still have to have a milker in the pit. And um, we, we tend to have, you know, coming from the old days when you used to hand milk cows, um, we've always had a lot of people on the farms. I think a lot of the farmers employ more people because it's, it seems to be the social correct thing to do. Um, we pay much, much less. I mean, the young people will be coming from... Uh, earning three or four hundred dollars a month max to earning sixteen, seventeen hundred in the United States. So one of the things that really blows them away is how much money they're earning. Um, one of the things that's really interesting is that um, when they go onto those farms, uh, the the farmers are employing people from Europe, uh, quite a few from Eastern Europe, uh, but Mexicans as well. And um, so our young people are introduced to people from very different cultures, uh, which is very good for them. 
they come back speaking some German and some Spanish and a, and a few other languages as well, which is good. And, and I think they leave behind a little bit of Zulu. Um, so, um, you know, it's a tremendous growing experience. You know, one of the boys said to me, because we're from such different cultures, he said, sometimes we don't understand one another, but he said, um, the best thing is just to back off and and to understand that this is a uh, that this is a different um, uh, that this is a different culture. Um, they, they they learn more about themselves, about work ethic, uh, and about attitudes to work than they do about the industry. What they learn about dairy farming or um, whatever else, uh, one of our youngsters is, um, uh, is, is actually on a golf course. He's a, he's a greenkeeper down at um, Sea Pines. Um, and I mean, I had just the most amazing thing from, um, from his employers. He, he was at a congressional country club for six months and then they moved him south uh, when the, the weather started to get cold. Um, and I wrote to them and I said, thank you so much for everything that you've done for Fortune. You've changed his life. And they wrote back to me and said, what we've learned from him, from his humility and his attitude and his work ethic is far more than he'll ever take home from us. Ah, that's great. Um, and, you know, you feel really proud of a youngster like that. But, but this young man, because of his attitude, he is, I mean, his future is, uh, he's going to have a fantastic future when he gets back here. Do you worry at all about uh, people that you send abroad not wanting to come back to South Africa? Um, no, I don't. Um, within the African culture, you get very, very strong family ties. Um, the sons and daughters are required by the family. Culturally, they look after the older people within the family and so on. So you, you do have these very strong family ties. We do, um, when they go over, they go over on a 12-month contract uh, and they sign an agreement with us as well. Um, the young man who is uh, doing the golf, um, uh, the golf course internship, he's been invited to stay for another six months. But the first thing he has to do is he has to pass um, a number of uh, courses that are run by the Ohio State University and he has to pass all of those courses at no less than 94%. Yes, yes. So, um, no, I don't have a problem with that. Um, we've never had uh, a youngster not return. That's great. Um, and, and, and I don't think that'll be a problem. I mean, obviously there's certain things that I mean, if he's over there and he runs away, right? <laughs> you know, I can't come and look for him. Right. <laughs> um, but 
I'd be very, very surprised if that happened. And so now tell me about, I'd like to know two questions. One is, what are the most immediate challenges that you face as an organization? And then tell me about your vision for the future of the organization, Future Farmers. David, um, my biggest issue at the moment is funding. I'm, I'm, I'm in a in a bad place because I don't know how to say no. And these young people come to me. I, I interviewed eight yesterday. Um, these young people come to me and they come from all over the country. I've had calls from other African countries as well. And... Um, um, when I see the passion, I can't say to them, I can't take you on because I've got too many. Um, I need funding so that I can employ mentors. I would like to have mentors that, that are trained within certain areas. Um, so I'll have a mentor in a certain area and that person will look after 20 young people and that person will be a resident of that area so they'll know the farmers in that area they'll know something about farming um, the expansion of future farmers is limited only by the amount of work that I can do right um, uh, the, the, the funding that I've got for sending the youngsters overseas, that is fantastic because I've got um, I've got three uh, organisations: um, the Underberg Farmers Association, the Pasture Association, and and an organisation called Seville Foundation. They've all given us money that we are allowed to use to buy these youngsters air tickets, get their, help them to get their visas. Uh, cover their health insurance, etc. while they're overseas. Um, they go overseas and they pay back half of their salary every month until that's paid back. And then as, as soon as that money is back, we can send the next young person. That's good. Um, and, I mean, it's a fantastic system. Um, and and it, it, it really works well because we are actually making them take responsibility for themselves and for the next person who's going. Sure. Um, but but what I don't have is funding for the running of the organization. As I say, I'd like to have mentors. I'd like to have a full-time secretary. You know, I'd like to have someone to file things because I'm actually really bad with paper. Um, um, and the, this sort of administrative side, I feel I need uh, I, I need more help, but most people actually have to be paid, uh, as as you know, David. Right, exactly. Yeah, exactly. but there's there's no limit. I mean, we could be in every province in this country. Um, we could be helping hundreds of 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 young people. Um, I I just can't get to them and. Uh, and I know there are farmers out there that will work with us as well. Your short-term 
challenge really leads into your long-term challenge and your long-term vision, which is really how to scale the organization and and uh, reach more uh, young South Africans and send more of them around the world. I've got to get, I've got to persuade people that farming in Africa is not limited to subsistence and small-scale farming. I've got to somehow get the funding organizations that are handing out money for farming to, to believe that Africans can milk a thousand cows, that they can um, grow a thousand hectares of wheat or maize or whatever. This, you, you know, we in Ashoka, we are challenging the boundaries all the time. We're doing stuff that hasn't been done before. And it means that we often swimming against the current. Um, you know, if I were looking for funding for small scale farming operations, I would know who to go to because I know who does it. Right. But, uh, but I'm doing something different, David. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> exactly, exactly. We're, we're coming to the end of our time together, Judy, and I'd like to ask you a question that is directed towards people who are social entrepreneurs. You just mentioned Ashoka and, of course, Ashoka's work around the world encouraging social entrepreneurship. And um, so now you're, you are many years into your journey and uh, really working on scaling uh, a very wonderful that you have there. What words of wisdom do you have for people who may be thinking about um, doing something like what you're doing? Um, what uh, sustains your passion for the work that you do? And uh, what can you say to guide those who may be coming along behind us? David, I think that when you start something like this, um, there are a number of things you have to be aware of. One of them is that it's not going to be easy. People aren't just going to say, that's a great idea, I'll support you. They're more likely to say, that's a great idea, but this is why I can't. <laughs> and um, um, it, it is going to be uphill, but it is going to be worth it if it's a if it's a good project it is going to be worth it you know i had a phone call from um uh, this farmer in tasmania he gave me a terrible fright because you know they don't normally phone me and he phoned me and he said judy this is full from tasmania and i thought oh no problem and he said he said he said no no this isn't a bad phone call <laughs> um and he said, I want to promote Simbongila to manage my dairy. Ah. He said, I've never been able to do this before, but do you mind if I do that? And, and I said to him, no, of course I don't. But subsequent to that, he's decided to go to visit his mother, who's in her 90s, living in England, whom he hasn't seen for many years. And he's decided to go and have knee replacement operations done that he should have had done long time ago, but he couldn't leave his dairy. Ah, yes, yes. I mean, what am I doing this for? 
I'm doing this because we've got some outstanding young people there. Out there, some outstanding young people. These are kids that they might, they finish school, yes, but they don't have diplomas. They don't have money. They come from the poorest communities that you can imagine. And what we have to appreciate is that these young people have got exactly the same brain in their head as you and I have. Their ability and their capability is just the same as the people that have all the opportunities. We're just saying, we're just saying, try this. This is how you, you need to approach it. And, and certainly from a future farmer's aspect, they learn the farming on, on the farm. I teach them the attitude. And I teach them that, that they don't have to be limited by convention. That if they want to be a top farm manager or ultimately the owner of a huge uh, commercial operation, they can do it. Awesome. That is just so awesome. Judy, if people are listening to this and they want to support your work, the best place for them to do to find you would be on your website, which is Future Farmer Foundation, futurefarmersfoundation.org. Do I have that right? No, dot com. Dot com. Futurefarmersfoundation.com. And is there any place else that they should look to find you to find ways to support what you do? Um well, they, they, if they go to uh, my webpage, they'll find my, um, my email address, uh, which is redcow at telcomsa.net, um, and they'll also find my phone number there. And, and if anybody wants any ideas or they want to share anything with me in, in the way of ideas, or uh, they want to benefit maybe a little bit from my experience, or they've got experience that they think they can help me. Um, you know, these things, the more people we can help, the better it is. And these things, uh, Future Farmers doesn't belong to me. It belongs to it belongs to all of the children that I work with, all of the young men and women that I work with. It's for anyone who can get anything out of it. That's great. Judy, thank you so much for your inspiring work on behalf of young South Africans. And we look forward to catching up with you again in the future to find out what you've been up to. Uh, David, well, thank you so much. I've really enjoyed talking to you. This is my favorite subject to talk about. <laughs> thank you for joining us today. Our library of interviews and a range of further resources may be found at archstreetpress.org or prx.org.